cross can be defined as a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. You know, in the Christian faith, there are many apparent paradoxes. Uh, for instance, in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, we read that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Yet, we are simultaneously and repeatedly told in Scripture by Jesus in the Gospels to fear not. Also, throughout Scripture, we see a very common thread that God is absolutely and totally sovereign. That God elects us unto salvation. Yet, we are repeatedly and simultaneously told that we are completely responsible for our actions and our choices. These are apparent paradoxes, and they go on and on and on in Scripture. Here, yet again today, we see somewhat of an apparent paradox. As we are told by Paul, to tell, as he tells Timothy, to be strengthened. Yet, in 2 Corinthians 12, when we see how Paul is speaking of the burden that he is carrying... And how he says this, or actually how God says this to Paul, he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul continues to say, that, So therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Yet another paradox. So as a reminder, this paradox comes at a time when Paul is writing a message to his uh, young son in the faith, Timothy. You know, Paul is awaiting his execution, and he wants to equip Timothy, his friend and companion, for the ministry as the sun sets on Paul's time and rises on Timothy's time. And as we read the text today, and as we read this message that Paul has for Timothy, we're going to see four things. First, we're going to see the urgency of the message. Then we're going to see the intimacy of the message that Paul has for Timothy. Third, we will see the imperative of the message. And then finally, we will see the means of the message. So let's get started. So the first thing that we see in the text is the urgency of the message. When Paul tells Timothy... You then. You then. The urgency could not be greater. Paul is telling Timothy, come here, Timothy. I have something to tell you. You need to pay attention. And as Paul is awaiting his execution there in the Mamertine prison in Rome, he knows that his time is limited and that every word must count and every word must be understood by Timothy. And so he wants to grab his attention by telling him, you then, my child. In our introductory sermon a couple of weeks ago on this book, we saw how in approximately 64 AD, Emperor Nero of Rome wanted to build the city to his, or to his liking, so he burned the city to the ground. But as a response to that, the people of the city rebelled against him and started to riot to some degree, and then Nero shifted the blame to a minority group of people called the Christians who were believed to be atheists because they did not believe in the many gods of the Romans. 
Well, as a result of that blame shift, Paul got caught up in the persecution and was imprisoned there in the Mamertine prison in Rome. Well, as Timothy reads these words in this letter, there can be no glossing over or checking out. Every word must be carefully understood and obeyed. Paul wants to ensure that the ministry will go on in his absence, which at this point is inevitable. And Paul wants to equip Timothy for the ministry and prepare him for the trials and tribulation and challenges that are ahead of him. And Paul knows that Timothy's faith is wavering as he is there at Ephesus. Paul, or Timothy, not Paul. And as he's facing persecution himself, he knows his, he, is ten, he tends to be timid and maybe fearful. And that's why we read that he tells him to fear not, that we do not have a spirit of fear. Now, at the end of the letter, once again, we see the urgency to Timothy when he says in chapter 4 of this letter, he says, do your best to come to me soon. And Paul knows that his time is nearing an end, and he wants to make known his desire to be with his friend Timothy. There's an urgency there that we can see in this text, and we can see between Paul and Timothy. Now, there could be a valuable lesson learned here as Paul is communicating to young Timothy about the ministry. There's a valuable lesson that we, as disciples of Christ, as we make disciples, there's a valuable lesson that we, learn, we can learn. First, there should be a sense of urgency among us to be strengthened, just as Timothy should be strengthened. You know, in a culture where there's little to no persecution, it breeds weak Christians. It just does. So many are complacent and more concerned with the things of the world than they are the things of God. Now, this weakness is evident in many aspects of American Christian culture where People are more concerned with the things of the world than the things of the God, but also with a lack of biblical literacy. And not only a lack of biblical literacy, but a lack of biblical convictions. People place their faith more in subjective feelings and experiences than they do the subjective, I'm sorry, the objective, authoritative word of God. Many are malnourished and need the meat of God's word, yet they settle for something far less. And so there should be a sense of urgency among us as we make disciples to strengthen our brothers and sisters in the knowledge of what God's word says and teach them to not only know it, but to obey it and to grow in the faith and to understand the deep things of God and not let it be only a surface level thing. But second, there should be an urgency among us to use the time and the freedoms that we currently have. You know, though we are not facing great persecution like Paul did in his day, and there was a sense of urgency there, we should still have a sense of urgency with the freedoms that we currently have. And we have many. We have many freedoms to boldly, openly share the gospel with those around us. And we should take advantage of that. You know, Jesus says in John 9, 4, he says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. You know, not to take Jesus' words out of context here, but a simple lesson can be learned that we should take advantage of the opportunities that we have before us this day to share the gospel. 
Because those freedoms could very well soon come to an end. Now, by all means, the Word of God is not bound. But if we have the freedom and the opportunity to share the gospel openly and boldly, should we not? So let us do that. Third, there should be a sense of urgency among us to raise up leaders for the next generation. A very key aspect of disciple-making is raising up new leaders. If we make everyone dependent upon one person, we are truly failing at the ministry. Now, our job should always be looking to work ourselves out of the ministry because that'll never happen. Whether we are a child care worker or a greeter or a pastor or whatever, we should always be looking to invest ourselves in someone else to raise up leaders so that whatever ministry it is can be carried on to the next generation. And so what we must do then is to pray as Jesus says in Matthew 9, 28, he says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. You know, it can be very difficult to find people who are faithful. It can be very difficult to find people who are willing and desirous to lead, to take on the ministry. However, what we must do, we must pray for those leaders to be risen up. We must pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up those laborers and send them out. So, there should be a sense of urgency among us to be strengthened in God's word to know it and apply it. There should be a sense of urgency among us to make disciples by sharing the gospel. And there should be a sense of urgency among us to make disciples by raising up leaders for the next generation. But the next thing that we see in the text today is the intimacy of the message when Paul tells Timothy, my child. You know, we talked about this in our introductory sermon on this book. If you were in a hospital bed, laid up, knowing that you were going to die, knowing that your time on this earth was limited, and that you had very limited time with people and limited things to say, what would you do? What would you say? I think we all would agree that we would want to have our family with us. We would want to have our closest friends with us. Every word would carry weight, and every word would be intentional. Well, Timothy was Paul's family, and as Paul's time was drawing an end, drawing near to an end, he wanted to communicate everything that he needed to communicate to Timothy so that the torch could be passed from himself to Timothy. It is of that importance. Paul doesn't even care about himself at this point. He just cares about the ministry continuing on without him. He is concerned with passing the torch to Timothy and that he would carry it forth. You know, over the past couple of years, uh, my daughter has run on the track team at school. And also with that, she's ran on the relay team. And something that I've learned very quickly when it comes to the relay is that one of the most important parts of the relay race is the handoff from one person to the next. That handoff can either win you or lose you the race. You can be a team filled with the fastest runners on the planet, and if you don't get that handoff right, it can make a crucial difference, and you can lose the race. Well, Paul is wanting a good, clean handoff from himself to Timothy at this juncture and at this time 
of his ministry. But a good, clean handoff requires a couple of things. If you think about it from an, an analogy standpoint in a race, you, know, you must first have an open mind, a focused mind. You know, he wants Timothy to have a focused mind. He must be focused, and as he is receiving that baton from Paul, Timothy must take that baton. He must focus on it. He cannot lose focus on this. He must be singularly focused on nothing else in that moment except receiving that baton from him. You know, this is what Paul is talking about in chapter 4 when he says, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, Timothy. Focus. Focus on receiving what I'm giving you. Put other things to the side. But what also must take place is an open hand. An open hand. By having an open hand, we would be willing and desirous to receive what is being given to us. And nothing else is occupying our hand in that moment. In the relay race, you want that baton to be placed right square in the middle of your hand. And you want to receive it right square in the middle of the baton. You want, it is crucial, you want to receive it with an open hand. But that's what, if you think about it, friends, that's what our life should look like. We should have, God gives us many things, but none of those things that we possess should be held in our hand like this. We should, everything that we have must be in our hands openly. Should God want to take something away from us, he can if he wants to place something in our hand, he can, without struggle, without a fight. It's so that we are there, open-handed, ready to receive whatever ministry that God is going to give to us. Paul wants Timothy to do this. He wants him to have this open hand at this time. As for us, we should do the same. We should have a focused mind and an open hand. Paul is handing the ministry over to this very close friend. And friendship and intimacy is foundational to pass a baton from one generation to the next. And it is foundational in pastoral ministry. And I believe that Jesus would tell us the same thing. In John 15, 15, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you. Friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You know, if you think about it, this intimacy provides for a good, clean handoff from one person to the next. Now, I can honestly tell you that I absolutely could not serve in this role as an elder of this church and not be the friends to the degree that I am with Eric and Justin. I could not do it. I wouldn't want to do it. I've been in some of those circumstances before, and it is miserable. And so I am grateful for this friendship and the intimacy that I have with these men. But it also provides for a clarity and a unity amongst us as we serve as the elder body. And ultimately, that spills over into the church body. The unity and the clarity and the intimacy and friendship that we share is something that you guys get the benefit from. What a terrible thing that would be if there was a division amongst us and fighting amongst us elders here. 
that would be terrible for you guys. It would not be glorifying to God and it would not be beneficial to you. And so as the letter 2 Timothy comes to a close, you can also hear uh, Paul's loneliness. You can hear Paul's desire to be with Timothy. He says, for Demas, in love of the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. You know, though Luke was with Paul, Timothy and Paul had this special friendship. They had this special intimacy. So much so that Paul says, my child, my child. And this friendship between these pastors was going to ensure a good, clean handoff from one pastor to the next, from one generation to the next. And it is crucial in the ministry. The next thing that we see in the text is the imperative of the message. Paul tells Timothy to be strengthened, to be in dunamis in the Greek. In, which means in or within, and dunamis, which means power or strength, which is where we get our word dynamite from, thus meaning to be strengthened inwardly or to have an inward power. Paul wants to have this, Paul wants Timothy to have this inner strength and this inner power because he's going to need it for the days that lay ahead of him. Paul knew the difficulties of ministry. Paul knew the difficulties of ministry from an internal perspective as he served and dealt with the church of Corinth, that wayward church. He also knew the difficulties of ministry as he served the church of Ephesus, as he dealt with false teachers, as we saw in the book of 1 Timothy. But Paul also knew the difficulties of ministry from an external perspective as he literally had his head on the chopping block and was suffering great persecution at this time. Many difficult days laid ahead of Timothy, and we know this historically. You know, Fox's Book of Martyrs is a great book. If you get a chance to read it, I would suggest... Not reading it at night before bed, it will cause nightmares, but it is a wonderful, wonderful book that every Christian should read to see the legacy of many martyrs that have gone throughout Christian history. But in this book, we can read this about the end of Timothy's life. It says, Timothy was the celebrated disciple of St. Paul and Bishop of Ephesus, where he zealously governed the church until A.D. 97, At this period, as the pagans were about to celebrate a feast called Catagongian, Timothy, meeting the procession, severely reproved them for their ridiculous idolatry, which so exasperated the people that they fell upon him with their clubs and beat him in so dreadful of a manner that he expired of the bruises two days later. This is what Timothy's fate was to be. Paul knew that Timothy had these difficult days ahead of him. And he knew that his faith was prone to waver. As we said that he tells him that we have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Paul knows this about his young friend Timothy. Thus, he tells him and gives him the imperative to be strengthened. Now, I stated earlier this can be somewhat of an apparent paradox because to be weak is to be strong, right? So what is inner strength. What is it? First, we must realize who we are. 
We are a species that is completely and utterly dependent upon God. We are in complete need. In Job 6, 11 through 13, we read this. What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones or my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me, Job says, when resource is driven from me? Job, this righteous man, was stripped of everything but a nagging wife, is left with nothing. He's left with nothing, and he realizes that he is in complete and utter need. He is in complete dependence upon his creator for any strength at all. No, we have no strength within us inherently. And if we stop to think about it, we would be just like Job, who would say, do I have any strength at all? Do I have any resources at all? And the answer is no. You know, Timothy needs to understand this and ask that same question. Do I have any help in me? Inherently, no, you do not. You know, we are helpless and hopeless on our own. We are dependent upon God, not independent, and we will be forevermore. And praise be to him for that, because God is good and God is gracious. So we need to know who we are. But second, we need to realize that strength, if it doesn't come from within us, where does it come from? Romans 16, 25 says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Isaiah 40, 29 says, He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. And Nehemiah 8.10 says, Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let me repeat that. For the joy of the Lord is is your strength. Our inner strength comes from God. I know this is kind of a Sunday school answer and it sounds so simple, but it is also yet very profound. Our strength comes from God. And when the battles of life come, it is God whom we throw ourselves at. You know, if you think about it, you know, this is the preamble of the gospel. This is the preamble of the gospel. The the gospel is not good news until we understand the bad news, right? We, it is not good news until we understand the bad news. And when we truly understand the bad news of our condition and who we are, then it makes the gospel that much sweeter. It makes it that much sweeter. And we realize that we need him. We need him. You know, to expound upon Nehemiah that much, uh, Nehemiah, our strength is in direct proportion to God's joy and delight. So what does God delight in? God delights first in his son. The father delights in the son. If you think about it, that the baptism of Jesus, what do we read? As Jesus comes up out of the water, he says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, we read as uh, the disciples are there. Peter, James, and John, they hear this voice from the cloud that says this. It says, 
A voice comes from the cloud. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So the father delights in the son. But God also delights in his church. Why? Jesus tells us in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 10, he says, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Jesus is glorified in us, guys. Jesus is glorified in us because the church puts on display the character and nature of God. It puts on display the person and the work of Jesus. You know, if the world would truly take a moment to look at the church and truly investigate the church, they would see the character and nature of God displayed. They would see the justness of God. They would see the mercy of God, the grace of God, and the love of God. They would see that. You know, there is nothing inherently within us that makes us valuable or even lovable as if God would bow his holy knee to his own creation. Now, our value comes in the fact of our purpose. Now, purpose is the fact that we put on display the glory of God to the universe. That's why God delights in us, and he does, and he does love us. But for that reason, God also delights in the gospel. God delights in the gospel. God delights in the gospel because his, his strength is put on display in it. In 1 Corinthians 1.27, Paul says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who become, became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The gospel puts on display the strength and the power of God. Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. God for salvation to everyone who believes. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 Because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So God delights in His Son. God delights in His church. And God delights in His gospel. That is our strength. And work that backwards. The gospel, the church, Christ. That is our strength, folks. That is our strength. And we must understand that the gospel is not a product that we consume as salvation and then we're done with it. No. We never leave the gospel throughout our entire life. It should be sweeter to us as we are on our deathbed as the day that we first received it. In fact, we should be clinging to it that much more, and it should be that much sweeter to us. It is the gospel that is our strength. 
And this is what Timothy needed to be reminded of. And this is what Timothy needed to understand in order for him to be strengthened. You know, this is not some pull-up-your-bootstraps moment that Paul is telling Timothy. No. It is the gospel that we find our strength. But finally, we see the means of the message. Now that we know what it is, what our inner strength is, how do we obtain it? Paul tells us that it is by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You know, a very small yet important word here is in. Now, this prepositional phrase is a locative sphere in the Greek. And what that simply means is it is to be under the sphere of. This, this word puts something in the sphere of or in the domain of or under. And so when we are in and under the sphere of Christ, we receive that strength. Why? Because we are in Him. Outside of Christ, we have no strength. But inside of Him, we do. So to be in Christ is to abide in Christ. John 6, 56 says, Who feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now we know that Jesus is using a figure of speech here, and we are not literally to be eating his flesh and drinking his blood, but what he's telling us is, is that we're not just to nibble on him just a little bit. We're to, we're to fully be in him, and he is to fully be in us. We are to be in him. We are to abide in him. Now bear with me in this lengthy passage, but it illustrates it so very well. But John 15, 4 through 10 says, Jesus speaking to the disciples, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, and whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do Nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Bear with me for just one more moment. 1 John 2, 3-6 through says, And by this we know we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this, may we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So what's the key theme here, guys? Obedience. 
obedience? Are you striving to keep his commandments and to walk as he walked? And when you fail, are you trusting that he is your propitiation? That he is the one who has taken the penalty for your failures and your sin? And what we must understand is that our faith, our trust, and our obedience to him is the means by which we receive our inner strength. Our faith, trust, and obedience does not merit us this inner strength, but from the human perspective, it is the means by which we receive God's inner strength. Strength, by means of God's grace through our obedience, is found in Christ alone. It is in Him alone. And God wants us to have this inner strength. He he is desirous to give us this. It is by His grace and being found in Him. And so we must understand what James 4 tells us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. So May we humble ourselves, recognizing who we are, recognizing who God is, and humble ourselves before him and receive his grace. That's how we become strong. The way up is down. It is a paradox. And we must understand this. So we humble ourselves, therefore, we receive our strength by being dependent upon him. So in conclusion, and to recap what we've seen today, we have seen the urgency of the message in that we should be resisting the temptation to be complacent and strive to be strengthened and to share the gospel while we can to make leaders. So let me ask, Do you have a sense of urgency among you? Do you have a sense of urgency among you to immerse yourself in God's word, to understand it on a deeper level, to be as biblically literate as you possibly can, to grow in your own faith? Do you have a sense of urgency among you to share the gospel with the nations? Because that commandment is given to you. And you're either being obedient or disobedient to it. So, are you thinking that's for someone else? Or are you recognizing that's for you? And are you being obedient to it? But then, are you sensing an urgency, friends, to make new leaders, to raise up new leaders? Whose life are you investing in? Whose life are you investing in? You should always have someone who is carrying you along, just like Paul did Timothy. But you should be looking back and seeing, who are you bringing along? Who are you investing your life in? Who are you pouring yourself into? But we've seen also the intimacy of the message and how the fact that some of our best friends should be found within these walls, sitting in these pews. These should be some of our best friends. There should be an intimacy among us. Yes, we should be evangelizing a lost world, but our best friends should be found within here. And so who are you investing in and having relationships with here? And we've seen the imperative of the message, 
to be strengthened. And our strength is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me ask, do you daily reflect on the gospel? Do you daily reflect on that? Do you reflect, reflect daily on God's goodness and his grace towards us? Because that's where you will find your strength. That's where you will find God's strength in you. And then, finally, we've seen the means of the message is by God's grace. And it's found when we are in the sphere of Jesus Christ and abiding in his person and his work alone. So finally, let me ask, are you in Christ? Are you abiding in him? Because you were either in Christ or you are outside of him. You must fully consume him and he must fully consume you. If you are in him, you will receive the strength that you need. You have all the access of all the strength that you need in this life and the life to come. However, if you are outside of Jesus, to use his very own words, Jesus says you will be thrown away like a branch and you will be thrown into the fire and burned. So let me ask you once again, are you in Christ? Are you abiding in him? I pray that you are. I pray that you will be. Let's pray.